Open your Bibles to Psalm 8. I've titled the message this morning, 17 Reasons Why You Should Sign Up for VBS Today. (laughs) In the first service, Bob made a same announcement, and my phone got like three dings in the midst of that service of people that were registering. So they caught that announcement, and I'm not sure if they caught much else. Psalm 8, it's been said that the test of a man's character is not how he treats his equals, but how he treats his inferiors. I think in our interaction with authorities and with superiors, we would generally testify that we have a greater affinity for those superiors that we interact with that deal with their inferiors with kindness, with gentleness, with respect, and with care. When I was seven years old, my family, uh, my dad was given a pair of tickets to go to see the Detroit Pistons play the Los Angeles Lakers. We live near Detroit, and so me and my dad got to go and see an NBA basketball game of Detroit versus the Lakers, and we got there really early because it was the first time we'd ever had an opportunity to do that, and we were given front row seats. It was a sweet opportunity, and uh, we got there early before a lot of the other fans showed up, and as we're sitting there just observing, watching team warm up, we saw a man, some of you will know the name Bill Walton. He's a, he's a Hall of Famer, uh, famous, famous basketball player, uh, big, tall, six foot 11 guy. And uh, I, I approached Bill Walton because he was sitting there on his own and, and asked him to sign my Detroit Pistons hat. And uh, Bill Walton granted my request, but that was all that he did. Uh, he he, he kind of scowled. He wasn't really uh, a, a, a nice individual in that moment. Uh, but he signed my hat and never said a word to me, and I went back to my seat, excited about the autograph, but a little bit dejected. About 10 minutes later, an NBA basketball player named Rick Mahorn walked out of the tunnel, and uh, I did the same thing with Rick Mahorn, and my interaction with him was completely different. Rick, NBA six foot ten guy, gets down on one knee, asks me how I'm doing, thanks me for coming to the game, uh, welcomes me, signs the, uh, signs the hat for me, and then uh, stands there for, for a few minutes and, and takes pictures with me and him and, and a friend that came with us as well. It was, a, it was awesome. It was as a, as a child, my affinity for this Rick Mahorn, I walked away with a greater affinity for him than for someone who, as far as basketball is concerned, Bill Walton, um, absolutely has a bigger name than Rick Mahorn. But my affinity for Rick Mahorn came because though he has more authority, though he has a superiority over me, though he is a more recognized individual for me, he treated me as an inferior with kindness, with uh, even, even respect as a child. He, he was gracious to me. There's countless illustrations of this. I'm sure we could all give illustrations of times when someone of superiority showed grace and kindness to an inferior and what that means to the inferior. But the greatest illustration of this in all of history is the kindness that Almighty God has shown to sinful man. The psalmist is going to pick up on that theme. The kindness and the thought of a superior to an inferior in Psalm 8. Christian Bateman the writer of Come Christians, the hymn, Come Christians, Joined to Sing, picked up on this same theme in the second verse when he wrote, He is our guide and friend. To us, he'll condescend. His love shall never end. Alleluia. Amen.
His awareness that God had condescended is the same theme that David is going to pick up on here. And that, that, that term, condescension, is a term that's taken on really a negative meaning in our vernacular, but that's not inherent in the word. The word condescend literally just means to step down, to lower oneself. And the way that Rick Mahorn once did with a seven-year-old, the same way that God has done with all of humanity, he has condescended. He has lowered himself. He has stepped down and intervened in humanity. Let's see how the psalmist picks up on that same theme in Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man, that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a psalm of ascribing glory and majesty to God. You pick up on the theme in verses 1 and 9. You notice the same line is repeated. These are essentially functioning as like, as like bookends to the psalm, telling us what this psalm is about. What is this psalm about? It's about David declaring, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then the content of this song is going to be him picking out the reasons why he is thinking of the majesty of God, the reasons why he is proclaiming the majestic name of God. He says that the earth, the earth proclaims God's glory. As we walk through this passage today, we're going to see him observe the earth, and his cry is that the creation proclaims the name of the creator. The creation sings the creator's glory. All of the world declares the glory of God. And that that God, of whom all creation sings, has graciously intervened with sinful humanity. David observes these things and he wonders. He's in awe. That the God who made the world is the God who cares for him. The God who displays his glory is the God who has reached down to man. The God who deserves all praise has condescended. And so we are left today with two awe-inspiring observations that lead to worship. 
to awe-inspiring observations that lead to worship because that is what David is doing here. As he observes these things, he's left to do nothing but worship this great God. So as we move through this psalm, we'll see David reveal two awe-inspiring observations that lead to worship. Number one, he has chosen the weak to give him glory. God has chosen the weak to give him glory. This is shown in verse two. Let's get a running start in verse one. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. In this verse, I believe that David is emphasizing that God has chosen the weak to give him glory. Now, he zooms in on a very specific weak group of people that God has chosen. It says that he is glorifying his name from the mouths of babes and nursing infants. It's a curious statement by David and one that certainly needs explanation. How do the mouths of babes and nursing infants establish the strength of God? David clearly says that that's what's happening here, but what is he talking about? How does that actually take place? Well, the term babes and nursing infants in these verses that are used are broad terms. They're generally used in the Old Testament as words that could refer to children about ages five and six or under. Now, that may cause you to wonder why exactly it's translated nursing babes, and to explain this, This is a little bit awkward, but we need to talk about it to understand what this means. Children in that day nursed until the age of five or six, generally, from their mother. And so when David says this, when he's thinking of nursing babes, he's not thinking necessarily of an infant the way that we would think of a nursing infant. He's thinking of young children who were still at a young and helpless stage And he says that from their mouth, God is establishing his strength. The reason that all of that is significant is because David is probably thinking of the praise of young children when he says what he says in verse 2. He's thinking of when young children praise the name of God, when from their mouths God is declared He is establishing his strength. You're welcome to turn there. You don't have to. I'm going to read it. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 16, Jesus confirms this understanding of Psalm 8. In Matthew chapter 21, it's the scene where Jesus is in the temple and there are children shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Remember that scene? There's religious leaders that are getting frustrated by the commotion that's taking place with children dancing around shouting, Hosanna to Christ, the son of David. They talk to Jesus about it, and Jesus' response in Matthew 21, 16 is so key. When he sees children declaring his praise, his mind goes to Psalm 8. Jesus says, have you not heard that from the mouths of babes and nursing infants, I have established praise for myself? 
Jesus, when he sees children praising his name, references Psalm 8 in his mind because I think that's exactly what David was thinking when he wrote it. So why does David say this? Why is it that God establishes his strength through the mouths of babes and infants? The word establish means to essentially to found something. It's like if you were to set up a tent and leave it, generally that would be a bad idea because tents will blow away in the wind. But when we set up a tent, we take stakes and we drive those into the ground to hold that tent in place. It's a similar term that's used here, that, that his glory is established, that it's founded, even, even shown off and declared when he is praised from the mouths of children. Why is that? Because in doing this, God is showing the magnitude and the extent of his strength, of his power, of his glory, and of his majesty. He is saying, look at my glory, look at my power, mere children, the most helpless and weakest of sources are declaring my praise. That is how powerful I am. That is the extent of my majesty, that even the most helpless shout my praise. Why does he do that? The psalmist continues in verse 2. He says, you do this because of your adversaries. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries. So God, in doing this, in establishing praise through himself, to himself through the mouths of babes and nursing infants, is essentially spiking the ball in front of his enemies. To those who are opposed to him, he says, look, look at who I use to show off how strong I am. I use the weakest. I use mere children. And in doing so, he sends a message loud and clear to his adversaries. My brothers and I uh, always used to enjoy playing pickup sports. We'd play with lots of kids in the neighborhood. We'd, we'd play basketball, football, hockey, soccer, anything. And there was always a process before uh, we would begin of picking teams. And we would, we would choose a captain. And whenever I was allowed to be the captain, I, I developed a strategy that... I think will help to understand what's happening in this passage. I realized early on that if I picked only the worst people for my team, that I could not lose. And here's why. If I lost, look at my team. But if I won, man, did that make me look good. Now, that was completely motivated by pride, and I never won, so it didn't really work anyways. But... <clears throat> What's happening there is exactly what God does. He chooses the weakest of sources so that it makes him look better. He chooses mere children to glorify his name because in doing so, he looks strong. The magnitude of his strength is revealed through that event. So Psalmist says, you're doing this of your enemies. You're spiking the ball in front of your enemies. Why? He continues to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. 
I don't believe that David is saying that this kills the enemies of God, but that it causes them to stop, to observe and to wonder at how great this God is who uses these weakest of sources to establish strength. David is aware of this, and he wonders. He's in awe. The enemies of God see this, and they stop. Their acts cease at the power of this God, and we must do the same. The reality is that what we see in Psalm 8 is just a snapshot of the way that God always works. David is just using an illustration here, an illustration of God using the weak to establish his strength. Here, the illustration is babes and nursing infants. But these are shown all throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the illustration is Paul. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's the scene where Paul has what he describes as a thorn in his flesh, and he wants God to remove it. Three times he prays, he pleads to God, remove this thorn from me, and remember God's response. My grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. So God doesn't remove the thorn. To Paul, he says, if that thorn remains in you, you remain more weak, which makes me appear to all men as strong because I use the weakest of sources. How about another illustration? We have babes and nursing infants. We have Paul. How about the entirety of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Here's how Paul describes the entirety of the church in 1 Corinthians 1. The not many wise, the not many noble, the not many mighty. How's that for a ringing endorsement of the church? Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. I'm going to read you 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, because it nails this point as Paul communicates it. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So, why? So that no man may boast before God. That's the exact same song that David sings. He uses the weakest of sources to establish his strength. And no one can boast. And that's exactly the response that we see occur in David's heart. Total and utter humility is the response to an awareness of these truths. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. The second awe-inspiring observation that leads to worship in this passage is that God has given the weak 
a position of glory. God has given the weak a position of glory. That's number two for us this morning. God has given the weak a position of glory. So God has chosen the weak to give him glory. And God has given the weak a position of glory. Just saw how David came to that conclusion. The transition in verse three is that David essentially walks outside into the night sky and he looks up into the heavens. He looks up into the scene that he would have been oh so familiar with. David, remember, shepherd boy, would have spent countless nights out among the stars. And remember when and where this is. We, we go out into the night sky in Kansas City and we see some stars. But we're limited just because we're in a city, there's lights, there's smog, there's detractions that cause us to not be able to behold the heavens in all of their glory. What David would have seen most likely in this scene would have been millions of stars, planets, the moon. Uh, my wife, Alyssa, uh, is from Montrose, Colorado. Her, her parents still live out there. They're in the mountains of Colorado. And anytime we go out there, any chance I get, I go out after the sun goes down when it's dark and you're thousands of feet above sea level, miles away from any city lights. The scene is incredible. It's a scene where the ground is lit by starlight. Can I even begin to count the stars? And that's, that's probably the scene that David would have beheld as he reveals it in verse 3. He walks outside seeing stars upon stars and planets, the heavens, the moon. And look at how he describes it in verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. It's, a, it's an expression that David uses there that implies that this is, it's, it's, the heavens are the mere work of his fingers. They're nothing to God. This wasn't something that God had to slave over to create. It's, it's the mere work of his fingers. He spoke and this all came to be. So David beholds all of this, this, this belittling context, and he has a humbling realization. He has a humbling realization that man is entirely unworthy of the thought, the attention, and the care of God, as he sees this, magnificent, this magnificent scene, he asks this question, verse 4, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? David asked the question, who am I? That the God who made all of this would think about me? That he would give thought to me? And then note the progression. Let alone that he would care for me. That he would intervene in our lives. That he would condescend and care. I am so unworthy of these things. He uses, he says, what is man and the son of man? Those are both terms that indicate man in his weakest sense. A sinner, mortal, weak. 
The gap between God and man could not be shown more starkly than by the terms that David uses right here. We are worthless, David says. We are unworthy of his thought and of his attention. And yet, verse 5, you have made him, that's man, a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. Do you see what David is wrestling with in his mind? He sees marvelous heavens. He's overwhelmed by what he sees. A God that uses the weakest of sources to give him strength. He is the creator of everything And he's humbled to say, who am I to be worthy of your thought, to be worthy of your attention? I'm unworthy of all of that. And yet, yet you've made man a little lower than God. David is awestruck by these realizations that he's coming to in this scene. He's floored by these realities. Just a quick side note. It is good to do what David does here. It is good to go out into creation and to behold creation in light of the creator. To view what he has made and ascribe glory to him because of it. And in doing so, to be humbled. To be humbled with the position in creation that he has given mankind. That's what he keys in on in verse five. He says, you have made him a little lower than God. need a brief explanation here because some of your Bibles say something a little bit different there. Some of your Bibles say you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, There may even be some Bibles in here that say you made him a little lower than angels. The disagreement there on what this word refers to is, is understandable, but I think actually at the end of the day that this passage is very clear. It's the word, some of you will recognize the word. It's the word Elohim. It's used regularly in the Old Testament to refer to God. But there are times when this word can refer to heavenly beings or rulers, angels is where that's taken from in, in, in some of the translations. I believe the reason that Heavenly beings and angels kind of arose as a translation of this passage was because some translators were uncomfortable saying that man is made only a little lower than God. And understandably so, understandably so. That is certainly something to be sensitive of. But I believe when we understand what David is emphasizing here, he is not saying, he is not saying that man is a little less holy than God, that man is a little less righteous, that man is a little less strong than God. No, clearly based on the previous verse, the gap is large. Believe what he is saying in this passage is that man positionally in creation is placed just under God. Really believe that God is the best translation here. That word Elohim is used 365 times in the Psalms. There's one time where debatably it may not refer to God. One time. Not counting this passage. This overwhelming use of this word is to refer to God. And and I believe that it makes sense for it to refer to God in this verse too. Here's why. Believe what David is saying is that he is emphasizing that man is made in God's image. When he says man is made in the image of God, what he is saying is we are unworthy of being made in your image. 
Let's read this again, verse 5 through verse 8, and then we're going to jump over to Genesis 1 and see the correlation. Psalm, five, verse five, Psalm 8, verse 5 through 8, yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and the oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Turn over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God says this, and I want you to pick up on the correlation here. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See the correlation? In Psalm 8, David is essentially in poetic form quoting Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Turn back to Psalm 8. Again, he's humbled He's fully aware of the gap between God and man. He's completely unworthy, and yet God has made him in his image. God has made man in his image, and man has done nothing to deserve that. But verse 5 takes it even further. He says, and you crown him with glory and majesty. That's an expression uh, to, to crown someone was to award a victor. You would have given an athlete, you would have crowned them the victor of a game. It's the same term that's used to describe how God has dealt with mankind. He has crowned him with glory and majesty. In other words, he has given him a position of authority. He has made him a glorious and a majestic creature apart from the rest of creation. Now, what has man done to deserve that? Nothing, and that's the point. That's why he's ascribing all praise to God in this scene. Because he's so fully aware that while man has been given a position of authority, while man has been made in the image of God, he doesn't deserve it. He deserves it least of all. Who are we that he would take thought of us, that he would care for us, and yet he's made us in his image? And crowned us with glory and majesty. That word, majesty. It's shown up in another place in this psalm. Remember it? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. For you have made sinful man in your image, and crowned him with majesty. <laughs> There's no other response to these realizations than to do exactly what David does here. It is to worship. It's to be in awe that God has given thought to any of us, that he has cared for any of us that he has crowned any of us. 
David is humbled. And he rejoices. As this psalm wraps up, David zooms in on the most immediate illustration of the position of man in creation, this blessing that God has given. And that's what was indicated in Genesis 1.26. It's his authority over the rest of creation. Verse 6, you make him to rule over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. So all of creation, David says, has been subjected to man. You have allowed him to rule over everything that you've created. Now man is a creature. Man has been created. And yet by the grace of God, he has granted mankind a position of authority over the rest of creation. That's only because of the grace of God. Again, nothing to earn that. That was his choice before the foundation of the earth. And we are totally unworthy. God created man with a unique position of authority in creation. He was made in the image of God. David ponders all these things, and he is in awe. I think it's important to point out that David is in awe of a God who condescended thousand years before Christ ever showed up on the scene. David is praising God for his intervention in humanity without even knowing Christ in the way that we know Christ today. I can just draw our attention. We can sing this song that David sings in such a real and personal way because Christ has condescended. Now, God had absolutely condescended and intervened in David's life, and for that, David praises him fully. I want us to see that our reaction should be at least this much. Because Christ has condescended. David says, what is man that you would take thought of him? What is man that you would care for him? If I can take it further, can, can, can we ask, who were we that Christ would die for us? What is man that God would take on flesh and give himself for us? Again, the realization is the same. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That you would step down. That you would intervene in humanity. That you would condescend. Don't ever lose that wonder. Don't, don't ever forget that. The 
God has condescended to the utterly unworthy, that he's chosen the weak to establish his strength, and that he's given the weak a position of glory.